Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Sally Kate Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about a pretty cool new offering from our friends at Apollo Podcasts. You can now find the play on podcasts on Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators such as us. You can listen ad-free, early access to exclusives, behind-the-scenes supercuts, and more on Apollo Plus. On top of all that, 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes directly to creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Hey, everybody. Before we get into this interview with Nicole Salter, I just want to tell you about Meet Cute Rom-Coms. We're going to hear their promo in just a minute. I know maybe it doesn't have a lot to do with Shakespeare, but it definitely has a lot to do with romances like Love's Labor's Lost, not to mention romantic comedies like Love's Labor's Lost, and with romantic comic situations like Oh, I don't know. Love's Labor's Lost. You might also really be a fan of meet cute rom-coms if you liked In the Cards, a Next Chapter podcast production that we are very, very proud of, which is trending number one nationwide and worldwide. Here's the program. Are you tired of waiting for sparks to fly on your dating app? Do you dream of running through airports to deliver an out-of-breath, unplanned monologue? Then stop doom-scrolling and start listening to Meet Cute Rom-Coms, feel-good love stories that take you from chance encounter to grand romantic gesture in just 15 minutes. We're bringing rom-coms back. Get a brand new Meet Cute series on the first Tuesday of every month, with new episodes twice a week. Fall in love with Meet Cute Rom-Coms, wherever you find your podcasts. Is this where we kiss? Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On podcast series. I have a very special guest with me here today. Her name is Nicole Salter. She is an incredible theater artist in many iterations. She's an award-winning, Obie award-winning actress and writer who arrived onto the professional scene with her co-authorship and co-performance with Danai Gurira of the Pulitzer Prize-nominated play In the Continuum. She has appeared in Gavin O'Connor's feature film Pride and Glory, starring Ed Norton, Colin Farrell, and John Voight. She can be heard as the voice of Leticia in Rockstar Games' video game release Midnight Club Los Angeles. And she has worked as a dramatist writing eight full-length plays. She's been commissioned for full-length work, work excuse me, by six institutions. She's been produced on three continents in five countries and has been published in 12 international publications. I am very, very happy to have her with me today because she's currently teaching and serving as the chair of the Department of Theater Arts at Howard University's Chadwick A. Bozeman College of Fine Arts, and I thought especially because this series, Love's Labor's Lost, is set at Howard University, 
It would be great to have Nicole here to tell us a little bit more about that incredible institution, its history, its philosophy, and why it is just such a perfect location for Josh Wilder's translation to take flight. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that wonderfully generous introduction. (laughs) Well, it's a real honor to have you with us. Tell us how you ended up as chair of the Department of Theater Arts at Howard University. I was completely recruited by the current dean, Felicia Rashad, um, as our college was being reinstated as a college uh, in 2021. She was looking for new leaders for each of the three departments in art, music, and theater arts to take on the charge of her new mission and vision for the institution. And I was roped in. Had you worked with her on other projects in the past? No, we haven't worked artistically together. We, too, have been uh, circling one another's spheres. She's a, a staple in the community of Howard, and I guess I can say I am as well. Um, I was had the great pleasure to sit in on some of her classes for the upperclassmen when I was uh, a student. I, of course, have been following her work and been a part of the community of Howard alums celebrating her various milestones and culturally significant contributions. But this is the first time where her and I have um, been in the trenches together. <laughs> And uh, I would say she's a a wonderful person to be in the trenches with, that's for sure. Are you a graduate of Howard? I am. I'm an alumna of Howard University back in 19... No. (laughs) (laughs) A a while back. It was in the 2000s. Um, No. (laughs) A while back um, when I finished my undergraduate tenure there under the chairmanship of the late great... uh, Al Freeman Jr., among many others. And were you a theater major? I was a theater major with a concentration in acting and a minor in radio, television, and film production. So it looks like I'm in the right place. (laughs) So Josh Wilder, who did the translation of Love's Labor's Lost, was here for a bonus content interview, and he relayed to us a story about looking into his ancestry while he was in grad school and learning that his grandfather, it may have been his great-grandfather, had been at Howard University and was very, very much involved in the theater department there. I did not know that about Josh Wilder. I'll be calling him. Can you tell us uh, some of the history of Howard University and the theater department, how much a part of the whole Howard University ethos the theater department constituted? Do you have some of that history for us? I do have all of the history for you. So Howard University's Department of Theater Arts really started with the tradition of speech and oration at Howard University, which began in about 1874. And I believe the speech um, course of study under uh, Coralie Ann Cook became compulsory at the institution, which is something I always love to point out because everyone had to take speech uh, in order to graduate. It was under her auspices that the more artistic lens of um, the oratory tradition took root. And from there, a club 
it was called the the drama club i believe i need to i should know that um which eventually became the howard players and they started in the early 1900s and they were a club that made money touring their productions of mostly um, Western classical work all over the city and eventually all over the world. Um, they made contributions to Howard University through their profits. They were pretty an amazing group of people. The Department of Drama properly became a department uh, as it branched away from the English department in about 1950. And the Department of Theater Arts was formed in, I would say that 1992, once the dance program joined then the, the program in directing and musical theater and administration and acting and theater education. Uh, in 1997, the entire college was collapsed under the auspices of the College of Arts and Sciences and became a division. And then here came our hero, uh, our, our griot, <laughs> Patrick A. Bozeman, who used the profits from his cultural contributions and work to help reinstate the college. Chadwick A. Bozeman was a graduate of Howard as well. Yes, he is an alum as well. He's older than me by about two years or so. Is speech still a requirement to graduate from Howard? Is speech still a requirement for students at Howard? It is not, but it should be. (laughs) One of the things that we profess um, on campus and beyond is that there really is not a spot where the competencies associated with the theater arts are are not warranted or helpful. There is not a single industry or discipline that doesn't benefit from them. And uh, there is not a single uh, discipline that doesn't have a kind of natural synergy or connection with what we do. Storytelling is the software to the body's hardware. So where there are people, there is story. And where there is story, there is the need for the embodied narrative so that we can participate in creating our experience and circumstance of life. Storytelling is the software to the body's hardware. I love that quote. And, you know, it it makes me think of, in my own experience, just how remarkable it is to achieve what theater artists achieve. A group of people who have never met a lot of times Uh, come together to collaborate on a project with a fixed budget and a deadline that has to be met. And they achieve it time and time again. It's the stuff of greatness. It really is. um, The fortitude of spirit in the collaborative environment that story making takes uh, is not for the faint of heart. It's some of the most courageous, vulnerable, and emotionally risky, if not physically risky, because <laughs> some productions <laughs> physically risky activities that you can participate in. But it is certainly one of the most holistic activities that you can participate in. I think much of our industry, much of the Western world's mindset is, is one of compartmentalization and industrialization. Like you can take things apart and you really only have to screw one nut on one bolt your whole life. Um, story making and story embodiment 
requires that you actually bring your entire self every time, which can be exhausting for a lot of people that it requires so much. But I think the arts, broadly speaking, not just the performing arts or the world of theater, I would say even culinary arts, I would say I would say everything at its artistic nexus, because I would say architecture really requires the whole person. It really does. And um, I'm, I feel like lucky to be a part of an industry that allows for the whole person to show up and, and expects for the whole person to show up all the time. Okay. So you mentioned Chadwick A. Bozeman, Felissa Rashad, yourself, who are some of the other names, uh, the great graduates who have come through Howard's uh, theater training program? Oh, we can walk backwards to Raji P. Henson is an alum. Uh, Richard Wesley, I always mention people forget about him. He's a dramatist. Dramatists don't get so much love because they're not so fashion forward, uh, as it were. I would say Camilla Forbes, who's the executive director of the Apollo Theater, is also. Uh, there's Felicia Rashad, of course, Debbie Allen, Ossie Davis. Um, these are all some of our great luminaries. Uh, Anthony Anderson, who is a television star who was working um, a lot. I would say Wendy Raquel Robinson as well. She's done a lot of television work, but most importantly, her work in the community. She started a conservatory called Amazing Grace Conservatory in Los Angeles that has churned out very many of the child stars that you know today. Mm -hmm. um, I could go on and on and on and on and on. There are quite a few, I'm thinking about Harriet Foy, Broadway star, Amber Amon, Broadway star. Uh, Susan Kalechi Watson, she's on This Is Us, uh, or was on This Is Us. I think the show is no longer. Um, yeah, on and on and on. And I, I, I mentioned those names because I know those names are sort of forward in the visual zeitgeist of our of our nation. But there are so many ways in which Howard University has produced leaders across the arts economy. Um, who operate in in various st stages and places of production and performance and education and humanitarian aid and advocacy. We claim them all. <laughs> How big is the art scene at Howard? Howard is a cultural nexus of the African diaspora. So when you say how big is the art scene, <laughs> I think if you think about it, uh, again, compartmentally, like if you're looking for art to only happen in galleries and on stages, then I think you're missing the culture that is Howard University. The amount of expression is uncapturable. Is that a word? Burgeoning you know, oasis of, of the expressed values and style and aesthetic and uh, voice and intelligence of the African diaspora. It's astounding and overwhelming most of the time. So storytelling is essential to the Howard experience. Yeah. I mean, for instance, we... In the department now, we are reviving a show called Rhyme Deferred. It's a hip hop play that was a pioneering play in the hip hop movement and in the hip hop theater movement. 
Uh, we have a wonderful man, his name is Tim Jones, who is actually currently archiving and chronicling the beginnings of hip hop and their genesis at Howard University. Um, it was a place that has made careers. I don't know if you know anything about the Howard University homecoming, but to have, to be a comedian, to be a musician, to be a rapper who is booked for that event ensures your cultural coolness and success. Um, likewise, I would say the Howard Players has had that same history. And I would say um, our department has had that history. I'm really excited about the future of our department and the intentionality that we're building around positioning ourselves to um, aid the field, not only through research, but through the production and incubation of creative works. It's, it's astounding <laughs> and fun and a lot of work. Can you count the number of majors that you have in the theater department today? Currently, we have 190 majors across five areas of concentration within the department. We have acting, arts administration, dance, musical theater, and technical theater. We also have five minors that include playwriting. Um, uh, we call it a theater arts generalist, which is a, essentially a, the, the field of dramaturgy. And then you can minor also in dance, theater technology, and arts administration. Is there a graduate degree in theater at Howard? That's what I'm here for. <laughs> the reasons I was recruited was to um, restore some of the programs to the major field of study, um, playwriting, directing, um, drama therapy, theater education, but also to launch the first MFA program at a HBCU. And we're looking to do that. Has the first class graduated yet? No, there the program hasn't begun yet. We've actually only been formulating the program since my tenure. I started in 2022. So in a perfect world, how long will it be before you can get a graduate degree in theater at Howard? I would say four years. Four years. There's a planning of the program, but there's also the, the raising of funds. The program itself, we hope to be an interdisciplinary theater MFA. Part of what we are committed to is building multi-hyphenate interdisciplinary artists who are able to navigate the arts economy uh, with great fluidity. Um, part of also what we want to create is the Narrative Institute of the African Diaspora that provides research for artists to art better and the narrative laboratory that allows us to engage the field of um, amazing genius artists who want to have some space to consider what they would create beyond the demands of the market or the um, the the, uh, the benefactor space. You know, what would you make if you didn't have to sell it to advance the culture? Join Play On Premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. I'm curious to know uh, how Shakespeare is situated at the Howard University uh, Theater Program. I mean, because there's so much to unpack there, right, with with 
colonization and the whole British literary canon and, and all the baggage that, that it comes with. How is it presented? How is it received by the students? Sure. We approach everything through the lens of our mission, which is actually to advance, uh, support the growth and development of the African diasporic experience through the study and practice of theater arts. So the Bard has a place because Black people have been engaging his work since he's been making it. Hence Othello. (laughs) Uh, It's not a a distant thing in that way. I would say it's not a, a centered thing in the realm of our curriculum or in our in our practice. Um, we look to be a hub for the Black dramatic narrative legacy and for its um, intelligence. And so with that in mind, we're looking to advance knowledge and the application of knowledge as it relates to a diasporic lens. Um, in the world of theater at large. But I would say in terms of our curriculum, Shakespeare has a whole class, (laughs) which not many dramatists do in general across across culture. It's rare to find a class on one singular dramatist. I think we appreciate his contributions, especially to the canon of um, psychological realism. to heightened language, I think very, I I strongly feel that the performance of Shakespeare um, creates a synergy that is a a veritable workout for any performer where the, the height of all of your skills are at play in the performance of the work. We just don't think that he's the only dramatist who provides us the architecture to have those kinds of workouts. Are there plays of Shakespeare that you feel shouldn't be done anymore that are just too problematic? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> Don't worry. You're going to get me in trouble. Don't worry. I'll let the emails come. I'll let them come. <laughs> um, I actually don't. I'm a dramatist. So like, what is a story that shouldn't be told? I would never say a story shouldn't be told. There are plays of, of Shakespeare's that I do not prefer. Um, because I'm a person and I have preferences and because I'm a dramatist and I have preferences. Um, there are some plays that I think that are done that would never be greenlit today, ever, <laughs> ever. Yeah. No one would ever do them. You would pitch them and people would be like, then what happens? She yeah. she didn't know like, what, huh, huh, what? So, so in that sense, I think that stories are these little time capsules of human development. And Mm. I don't think any of them should go away if we expect to understand ourselves. Um, But I don't think everything has to be emphasized. I think also, I'm speaking about myself now as an artist, I've spent quite a bit of time using my artistic practice to explore why things exist as they are, or more importantly, like why conflicts are conflicts. And I have only recently moved away from that that vantage point. Right now, I'm really interested in using the other 50% of the power of narrative. So 50% of it is is, um, reflective. It allows you to um, come to an understanding and to appreciate a complexity. And it gives you the space to observe and um, remember. 
But the other 50% is projective. It's actually a technology that is the beginning of the manifestation of a thing. There's nothing that we can look around and see before us that mankind has produced that did not begin with narrative. And so if we're actually using its power properly, we are participating in the becoming of who we will be through the lens of it. So how can we use story to practice what we actually want to manifest? Not only to reflect on on what is and why it is. I'm very interested in providing dramatic narrative platforms to practice who we want to become, to participate with more intentionality. And narrative is the technology that allows us to do that. I feel so inspired. I I would love to uh, apply to your program. (laughs) Can we talk about some of your other work as a dramatist? I, I know it's tangential somewhat to Love's Labor's Lost, but In the Continuum is uh, one of your works, and it delves into such incredibly um, important and and fraught issues, uh, HIV and gender and identity. I'm curious to know how that experience manifested for you, what it was like, what you came away with from it. The play was very well received by theater goers in the off-Broadway New York space and around the nation and around the world. Then I grew it and I toured South Africa twice into Edinburgh. We were all over the States. It was a, it was well-received. Here's the controversial aspect of that. Um, I think many people, the, the play is quite funny mm-hmm. and could it has a lot of rude language, mostly from my writing. And I think a lot of, I think the play could have toured a lot more if people didn't um, baby their audiences as much. I remember being at a talkback, I believe the production at that time was in Philadelphia. And there was a woman you know, who was thanking the theater for programming the show. And she was a, a woman of a certain age. She didn't understand why people who program for theater or for her demographic think that they don't know anything about sex. <laughs> and that it would be rude to talk about it. And she was like, how do you think we got here? Like, what do you think <laughs> since we've been here? Um, which I thought was hysterical and also just like the way we sort of uh, infantilize adults. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it, it comes from theater being a part of the capitalist system where you can't afford to lose. And so people are really careful about what they program. And that's where you start to get in, uh, get away from sort of the mission of the institution mm-hmm. itself because you have to chase the money and chase the carefulness of the audience and try to avoid all controversy as opposed to just experimenting, trying a thing, failing, it failed, it didn't work, try another thing. There's not a lot of room for that in our country, but that's not the controversial part. The controversial part is that we live in such an era of confirmation bias 
And I remember having a bit of a Dave Chappelle moment. Like, I'm like, I know why I wrote this and what I wanted to say and who I wanted to say it to, with, and for. Am I actually accomplishing that? And the people who are receiving it, what exactly are they receiving? Why Why was this play a hit? What does it say about our culture and community? What does it say about the the infrastructure, the business infrastructure of our field. Um, it made me think about another play that I'm, uh, I was asked to write that I'm probably not ever gonna write as I was studying the Harlem Renaissance. One of the fascinating things that I learned that, I, that really buckled my mind was that the luminaries of that period were, were supported by benefactors at the entirety of the cultural expression of the Harlem Renaissance. I won't say the entirety, I'm speaking with such absolutes, that much of the artistic output came from the support of white benefactors. So oh. these people were being chosen by white people who, oh. who had a desire to return to primitivism to be more connected to primitivism. And when I found that out, I was like, wow. So it's not that Langston Hughes and Zero New Hurston and County Cullen and, you know, name all the, the people are horrible artists. That's not true. But I also wonder who our community picked Whoa. that the white people didn't pick and what they wanted to talk about and say and how they wanted to express that the white people didn't think was primitive enough or I just wonder who and what that was. And I think about about my own work, like are at the at that time, I felt I had a lot of uh, what do you call it? Uh, imposter. I was in, in the imposter syndrome because I felt like I didn't really do anything. And people were spurring me along oh. because they liked this play. And I was like, what is it about this play that affirms your worldview? that makes you want to elevate it. Am I doing more harm than good? Am I reaching my goal mm -hmm. as you are reaching yours? I don't know. These are all great broad questions that I've never really asked in a public venue like this. Participating in and succeeding in a culture that you're critiquing is almost mutually exclusive, isn't it? It's odd because we we weren't critiquing it. We were we were telling a story of two women as they cope with the realities of an HIV diagnosis over the course of a weekend. We know why we were doing it and what we were hoping to engender in conversation. But I got the distinct impression that many people were okay to support Black women who have HIV and AIDS. There's a sort of paternalism about it. Mm -hmm. I felt like it's it's um, pure hearted. I didn't feel like it was malicious, but there's still a sort of worldview that it supports. Mm -hmm. That is not the totality of what's true. It's convenient. Like I, I never look back at that play in part because I have evolved as a human being. I know more. I'm wiser. I'm better in that way. And I don't know if I'd write it today in that way.
And if I wrote it the way that I would write it now, I'm not sure that it would be produced. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of points up the irony of creating theater in a capitalist society, doesn't it? Because when you create theater in a capitalist society, there you're you're kind of pushed toward making safe choices. The, that's what the corporate model rewards, and yet those things ultimately don't sell as well as the things that that really come from a place of authenticity that really do make people somewhat uncomfortable. The critique that people somehow seem to desire ultimately that's what sells. That's that's what punches through the darkness. Well, this is why I'm so hell-bent on the narrative laboratory of the African diaspora. Because there actually is not a single place that I've been able to find, and I, I would say I'm a pretty well-traveled individual, that is dedicated to creating a space to incubate and facilitate creative expression in the dramatic narrative form for the African diaspora without the consideration of how it's going to sell Mm -hmm. or who's going to fund it. And it's so important to me that we have that space because as I said earlier, narrative is the software to the body's hardware. So if your software is always being created by someone else or greenlit by someone else, then who is actually at the helm of identity formation? But I do think that story is sacred. And if you don't have control of yours, if someone else is holding your pen, that's a problem. It seems like right now we're in this moment of reckoning. All these theaters are closing. There's a crisis where theaters don't have the subscribers that basically sustain them. What do you think has to change? What is next in order for theater to remain viable? When I teach theater history and we chronicle the events that mark the evolution of the great forms of theater that we are familiar with or aware of, no one ever says, this little transition right here from the Renaissance to whatever, that was hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, this transition here from that which was menstrual and vaudeville to the, like, that was also hard. And a lot of people lost their jobs. <laughs> like That's never a part of the narrative. We just talk about the eras like they happened happily and just naturally evolved. I actually think we are a transition era generation. And it's about to be hard (laughs) because the needs of the story have outgrown the platforms and the traditions we've created for their distribution. I don't believe the story will ever die or the need for the embodied story, the need to see it on a body, to see trans, because all story is, is, is our examination of transformation. How does a thing change and how do we get to participate? You tell a story. You say, well, what had happened was, and then you go in (laughs) with the events that caused the change. So change is not going anywhere. So story is not going anywhere. And wanting to see it embodied is not going to go anywhere. But everything else could go. 
everything else is is up for renegotiation right now. We're not, I mean, we're in the strike season, but like, like the contracts for theater is up and we are in the throes of renegotiation. Do we want to go to a place and sit in darkness and watch a thing on the proscenium? Is that something we want to continue to do? It has brought us thus far. Thank you. Do we have to continue to do it? Because there was a time when that did not exist. Right. It is not a, a thing that must be. Is it still serving us? We are in a service industry. Every individual on this planet has their own narrative. They don't need us for story. Mm-hmm. We provide narrative options for their consideration. How are we serving them? Do they still need us? How do they need us? And then we should go do that. Where do you see the usefulness of the classics for helping to shape the storytellers of the next generation? These are good questions. And I don't have a I don't have absolute answers, not even for myself in terms of my opinion. I can tell you what we're grappling with. We're grappling with an industry that requires a person to be multi-hyphenate and interdisciplinary and diverse across the arts economy if they're going to be able to eat. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about training an individual, I think our responsibility is to make sure that they can eat mm-hmm. first. Secondly, we're in a service industry. Who are we serving? What do they need? If they need Shakespeare and August Wilson and Wole Soyinka and Lynn Nottage, we should give them Shakespeare and Lynn Nottage and Wole Soyinka. <laughs> if they need devised work, if they need participatory work, if they need augmented reality, if they need smaller performances, if they need larger performance, like what do they need? What is this narrative helping to evolve that they want to evolve? I think the problem that narrative artists have is that we have a narrative problem. Our culture tells people that we're here for their entertainment and we are not. We are here for their enrichment that happens Mm. often to be entertaining the entertainment is how we is how we grab attention it's not what we do so in that like i feel like we we need to have more places of experimentation so that we can figure out what the next paradigm of embodied storytelling is going to be we did all this infrastructure building around broadway and the regional theater movement and the presenting theaters, like there's all this infrastructure there. Do we still need that brick and mortar to do what we do? There was a time when it didn't exist and we still did what we did. Mm-hmm. So I feel like what I would want to see is more people being able to try more things without risking their the food on their table. It's It's the great conundrum of the artist in a way, isn't it? That we want to enrich. We don't want to alienate. We want to eat, but we don't want to baby the people that we are putting forth this 
work for? How do we find that sweet spot, that place where that tension can hold and yet we don't compromise ourselves, our values, or anyone's integrity in the process? We did it before. I just, I yes, it's difficult. I'm not saying it's not challenging. I'm not trying to minim, minimize that at all. But Zelda Fitchhandler and the regional theater movement did it before. That did not exist. They said, how come we have to keep going to New York? We, mm. I don't want to go to New York. I want, there are stories right here and there are people right here who are never going to New York. How do we participate in the narrative that builds American culture if we all only have to be there? And they took one foot a team and they stayed in Indiana and in Minnesota and in DC and in Texas and in Seattle and they built it. Yeah. 50 years, 60 years ago, it was not a thing. So they, they we, we've seen it happen. They're like, here's a new paradigm. You can see a story in your neighborhood. You do not have to go anywhere or wait for it to come traveling to you. You can be a part of it. It could be about you. There are artists who are right here. We'll just employ them. We don't have to import them. That was what that movement was about. And so they did that. And so I don't know that that's what it should remain, how it should remain. But I know that that it takes people actually want, wanting to meet the mission and reverse engineering what that takes as opposed to people who are thinking like, how can I not lose out? <laughs> how can I not, how can I get over there but not walk? Do you integrate um, things like Snapchat, Twitter, whatever, you know, social media into the storytelling techniques that you're teaching and creating at Howard? These are controversial topics. Talk to my faculty. <laughs> There are some faculty who are all of like, like this is storytelling. This is, this is what this generation of storytelling is. It's one minute sound bites. Whoa. Storytelling is one minute sound bites because we get, we're so, there's so much stimuli, you know? Um, do we consider it? Do we include it? Do we, do we use its power? What is the power of the one minute story? I mean, it got many people to buy a whole lot of cigarettes because that's all ads are. One yep. minute stories, thirty second stories. Um, that and so I I am for I am for meeting the mission. I don't I don't have those hangups, but there are traditions and accreditation standards and all kinds of things that keep people from really address like focusing on the issue at hand. What are some of your favorite places? on the Howard University campus today? My favorite place on Howard University's campus is the Chatterley Bozeman College of Fine Arts. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not, that's that's actually true. That's just true. It's um It's a place of grand nostalgia and great hope. How about outside, not in any buildings? Sure, to be on the yard, oh, that's what we call it, the, the main campus sort of, is is a wonderful thing it's it's the best people watching ever and it's sunshiny and there are all these benches there's a little nook that i like it's where the tony morrison bench is which is not far from the college of fine arts but this is a little bench in the sun 
where you can see things happening, but you're not in the middle of things happening. I think I also like the valley, but I like it mostly in the winter because people actually get like cardboard boxes and like um, sled down. They tell you not to do that. You shouldn't do that. I don't condone <laughs> it used to be the library founders library was also a wonderful place of productivity for me until i found the library of congress so that's my favorite one now but yeah last question for you what advice do you have to give to young aspiring black artists today learn your craft and know your why and don't wait for permission to do what you already know how to do. Beautiful. Nicole Salter, what an honor and a gift to have been able to have such a terrific conversation with you here today. If, if that doesn't get a whole bunch of people to apply to Howard University, I don't know what will. I hope so. <laughs> um, thank you for allowing me to articulate. I, don't, I write a lot of emails about logistics, so <laughs> I don't get to talk. <laughs> about those things a lot i don't that's great it's in, it's invigorating for me to articulate those things you've been listening to the play on podcast bonus content series for love's labors lost you can learn more about the play on podcast at next chapter podcast website ncpodcasts.com that's n as in next c as in chapter podcasts with an s at the end.com where you can find other play on podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts like the 500 the 10 beef with bridget todd and a whole lot more I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and my producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really does make a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.